Welcome to this week's episode for the Science of Caring. Today I am interviewing Dr. Tara Nichols. She is an expert in the concepts of comfort. Dr. Nichols? So I'm Dr. Tara Nichols and I'm an advanced practice nurse. My specialty is pain management and I've worked in nursing for over 30 years. I currently am the program director for the RN to BSN program at Waldorf University. And I am starting my own private practice in pain management focused on chronic pain and opioid use disorder all from a premise of comfort. And Dr. Nichols, I'm going to uh, refer to you as Tara, if that's okay, since we are colleagues that have known each other for quite a while. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So just to let you know, uh, we had a interview with Dr. Zane Wolf. Now, during the interview with Dr. Zane Wolf, she talked about the importance of doctor of nursing practice individuals and individuals with a PhD working together and collaborating on projects because the DNP comes from the clinical setting and the PhD is trained in research. Now, what was interesting about that is you and I, Tara, have done just that. And so I'm going to ask you to tell the story about your calling me to talk about your theory of comfort, and then we'll talk more about how we got into measurement, et cetera. But let's start with the story of you calling me to uh, see if I could help you do some research in comfort. Well, it started when I accepted a position as a clinical nurse specialist in pain management at a hospital in the Midwest. And as I was talking to you about the stories that I would get from my patients and they would you know, tell me about how the fact that healthcare professionals did not believe they were in pain was worse than the pain itself. And we talked about how patients would, I would go in, I would sit down, I would talk with the patients. They would tell me their stories. I'd maybe get on some ice water, or position them in bed or just asked them about pictures I saw around the room. And this in itself became an intervention that eased their anxiety and their discomfort. And so as we talked more and more about these stories, you, you said to me, you know, Tara, you should really quantify what you're doing in the form of a model that would allow you to do research. And so I continued to call you and wrote story after story after story about these different patients. And one that comes to mind is when I worked in pain management at an academic center. And inevitably, I would always get a call from an orthopedic nurse saying that the patient doesn't believe that this morphine in the PCA, a patient analgesic machine, is the same as the morphine that they got in their veins prior to going to surgery. I always thought this was quite interesting. So one night I go down and I sit with the patient and I say, you know, this is the same medication. Oh yes, I know it's the same medication, um, but it's not the same. I said, so, you know, once I would give the patient an extra dose and talk to them and calm their anxiety. I said, now tell me what's different about this medication. 
And then they would say, well, when the nurse gives me the medicine in my vein, she comes in the room, she fixes my bed, we sit down and talk, she fixes my covers, and she, then she tells me everything's going to be okay. But this medicine in this machine, I'm pushing the button, I'm pushing the button, and nothing's happening, and it's not the same. So right away, we, we start to see the different dynamics in comfort from the nurse being a part of the intervention. And for some people, PCA machine is, a, is fine. They can push the button, get their own medicine. But for other people, that human interaction helps to decrease their anxiety, opens up their executive functioning, and puts them in the best possible mindset for comfort to occur. So, and I love that story because it illustrates your theory so very well. Before we talk about the measurement piece, can you give a little more description of your theory with the four different aspects of pain that includes the internal and the external predictors? So as I begin to tell you more and more of these stories, the first thing that came up was that pain is linear. And it's uh, using a numeric scale, in my opinion, to measure pain is ineffective and it's too restrictive in the stress response that people may be experiencing. Okay, so there's pain that we traditionally think of on a zero to 10 scale. We could take this patient, for instance. There was the issue of trust. They, they didn't trust this machine to be given the medication. And because they didn't trust the machine, they never felt like they got anything. And then there is the issue of being a part of what is going on in this pain experience. And when that doesn't happen, people tend to feel like um, they're not a part of the plan of care. They have a low sense of well-being. If this experience continues, they can feel um, like they're suffering and no one, again, is believing them. There's a loss of trust. And then there's a loss of their self-worth in terms of what pain may be taken from them. It could be independence. It could be their work. It could be, you know, a number of things. And so as we started to look at all of these concepts, we came up with possibly more than one dimension in this stress response that we call pain that we should look at. And so we listed those out as being a part of the plan of care, the person's well-being, pain itself, fear, suffering, trust, and then grief from whatever they may feel like they're losing. And those became the dimensions of comfort. And then we said, okay, that's just one aspect of the mindsets that may influence how a person experienced this stress response that we try to just label as pain. What else is going on? And how does these mindsets move along a continuum of either advancing towards comfort or moving away from comfort. And so that's when we start to look at, well, what else is going on inside the minds of patients? And those became internal predictors, worry, anger, bitterness, hopelessness, helplessness, loneliness, and valuelessness. Because when people are in pain, and especially when they don't feel believed, they can begin to ruminate what may have started off as a minor pain experience now exacerbates by what's going on in their mind. So those are the internal predictors. 
and they're interfering with a patient experiencing comfort. But then the other part of that is what's happening external to the patient. It could be society, it could be the healthcare system, or it could be the clinician or the patient's family, or sometimes even the patient themselves, sometimes patients self-sabotage themselves. So we focused in my theory on the clinician relationship and we struggled back and forth in thinking about where does this concept of disbelief belong? And it really belongs to the healthcare professional, the clinician, because this is something that patients told me that when they are not believed, it's worse than the pain itself. And so what do healthcare professionals believe about this broader concept of addressing people's comfort or discomfort opposed to this linear approach of just a pain. And what do healthcare professionals believe is their role. I watched a group of nurses over a couple of month period and they would walk in the room and they would say to the patient, and on a scale of zero to 10, what is your pain? And then when the patient would give them a number and then they would turn to their computer and go to the MAR and start listing off all the medications, you know, Tylenol, Norco, morphine, Dilaudid, whatever, and decide which one they would give. And rarely did I ever see a nurse say, okay, you told me seven. So for you, what does that mean? And what would you typically do for a pain score of seven? Or see a healthcare professional say, well, have you tried mindfulness? Or have you, would you like to try some music? How about we give you a nice hand massage and I'll give you a couple of Tylenol, but it was always straight to the medication. Even though we know that pain should be managed from a biopsychosocial approach, it was just straight to the medication. Along with those external predictors in the clinician and their beliefs about pain and comfort, I started to look at role clarity. Does the healthcare professional understand their role is beyond just giving someone pills medications, clarity of themselves, clarity of the role of others. And then what does the system have to offer to make sure that they understand their role beyond giving medications? Another external predictor with the clinician is the therapeutic use of self. We don't teach therapeutic skills. Whenever I say that, people go, oh, well, we teach the nurses about compassion and empathy, but therapeutic skills go beyond that. Therapeutic skills is how do I show up in my authentic self so that my presence has the ability to modulate this comfort experience, either positive or negative? And then interprofessionalism, what is the impact of the care delivery? We treat all pain the same. However, pain in the ED is not the same as pain in labor and delivery. It's not the same as pain in the ICU, but yet we treat it all the same. And then professional development, how do we as professionals expand and move into broadening our knowledge? So these three buckets begin to form this model of how the dimensions of comfort, which is where we want the patient to move towards comfort, can be impacted by both internal and external predictors. And we also propose that the patient's internal predictors can be exacerbated by negative impact of external predictors. So if I'm worried, if I feel valueless, if I feel helplessness, 
And then the healthcare professionals are just dismissive, don't believe me. Those experiences can make me feel even worse. Right. Or better. So, so thank you for that really wonderful review. And what I appreciated about speaking with you about this theory of comfort is there was so much to it. And as a scientist, I was hearing you talk about this complexity of not only addressing pain, but comfort, because shortness of breath, if someone were to ask you, are you having any pain? Well, you're having shortness of breath, but because it's not a pain, I'm, I'm going to say no. Well, the patient and clinician, that interaction, they've missed the ability to enhance the patient's experience and maybe even help them within, you know, whatever, like say they're a COPD or, or you know, some sort of a lung problem. They've missed treating that patient. So talk a little bit about the concept of pain versus comfort and how the use of the word pain has really created some challenges. Yeah. Well, I actually have, I have two stories, but I think the one that I experienced just recently was with a friend of mine. And I was uh, explaining to her about my theory of comfort and how pain is too narrow and it misses so much. You know, we were on the phone. I didn't even know if she was listening to me because she's not, she works in healthcare, but she's not a medical person. And after I got finished explaining, she was like, wow, I've been going to the doctor for 30 years, explaining to him about female problems that I've been having. And he always asked me, do you have any pain with that on a scale of zero to 10? And she said, I always say no. She said, but I have been having bloating and gas and all kinds of discomfort. Whereas if he would have asked me, do you have any discomfort? We would have had a different conversation. And so for 20 or 30 years, she's been suffering through all these different discomforts. And that doctor doesn't even know that because he's always only asked her about pain. I had a similar experience when I started at my last job as a pain CNS, and I was explaining this concept to an ER nurse. And of course, she was looking at me like I had two heads, like, okay, where did she get this person from? So I hear over the call that a patient is coming in with chest pain. And she said, oh, we're going to get that patient. So we walk into the room. The EMT is there giving report. He's got his back to the patient. And he's telling her on a scale of zero to 10, she doesn't have any pain. He's giving her a rundown of when the pain started and so forth and so on. And the patient is sitting there grabbing her chest and she's like breathing so hard, like, oh my God, I'm going to die. And of course, because the discomfort that she was describing was centered over her chest, obviously they was working her up for a cardiac workup for MI, to rule out an MI, which was appropriate. And so I leaned over to the ER nurse. I said, ask her if she's having any discomfort. And so she said, well, are you having any discomfort? And the patient went, oh, yes, 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 I'm having discomfort. Oh, my God. It goes, when I breathe in, it hurts. When I breathe out, it hurts. It's just so much. And it's just like it's been going on for days. And I sit still and I try not to breathe too hard. And Oh, my God, this chest pain. And so they, you know, got the EKG and they got the tropes and whatever. And I said, tell the doctor to give her three or four milligrams of morphine. I said, because whether if it's cardiac or pulmonary, the morphine is going to dilate her vessels in her lungs and around her heart. And it's going to ease that discomfort that she's having. And so 
the nurse asked the doctor for the morphine. She said, well, I really think it's an MI. I said, yeah, it's probably pneumonia, but you guys go ahead and work up the, 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 the cardiac because you got to do it. I mean, you have to rule out cardiac. And sure enough, they gave her the morphine and she started, her breath started to ease and she, she started to relax and then she was able. So, so, so now we're putting her more at ease. We're putting her in a mindset where she can experience comfort. The nurse is talking to her more about when did this start, how long it you know, it's been happening, what made it better, what made it worse. And everything was pulmonary. Everything was pulmonary. And so then the nurse looked in the chart and the doctor had put in for an x-ray. And sure enough, she had pneumonia. And so the nurse, the ER nurse turned to me and she went, tell me more about that comfort. <laughs> tell me more about that. How did you know? I said, because of the way she described her pain. She described it as getting better when she tried not to breathe when she inhaled it got worse so what was happening is pleuritically the fluid and this and the tissues were irritated she probably had some pleuritis there and that's where she was experiencing the the discomfort was associated with her breathing but comfort and discomfort it allows you to get at pain whereas pain isolates you from any other experiences that I like to call a stress response because we don't completely know what's going on with the patient, but it will allow us to get more concrete information so that maybe we can go down three or four pathways instead of just staying very linear and narrow down one pathway. Right. And it's these stories, Tara, that as you were telling me, I thought this is really fantastic that you were addressing a situation in the patient experience of pain and discomfort. So when I asked you to put this down on paper and to graph it out to sort of draw a figure, the first figure that you sent was many, many circles. It was very busy. It had all the things that we're talking about, but there wasn't really a way that we were able to communicate to someone else in a an elegant way of there are internal predictors, there's external predictors, and that results in comfort once that's understood. We went through nine revisions. This model of yours is called the Nichols-Nelson model of comfort. And I know you use many theories like Kolkaba, et cetera. But we do have that as a chapter in our book using predictive analytics to improve healthcare outcomes. And this is one of those chapters on comfort. So those that are listening to this episode, I will be able to find that book and read it in detail and uh, in sequence. When we were working on the Nichols-Nelson model of comfort first to make a diagram that we could communicate to others, what was that like for you as a expert in pain management and comfort management to begin to understand, oh, I can make this visible in a way that not only visible, but I can create a model that I can communicate my theory, but I can also measure my theory as well. Talk about that experience as we move from stories to measurement. Well, Dr. Nelson, I'm going to say, you give me way too much credit because I had no idea what I was doing. And this is the this is the power of working with a PhD nurse because I have this clinical sense of 
patterns and themes and trends that go with my critical care, my ICU background. We pick up on, you know, things coming together and, and we start to say, okay, I've seen this before and it was this, or I've seen this before and it was that. And so now I was doing that critical care nursing process that I do in my head and I was trying to do it on paper, looking at these stories. And so all of the circles for me was representing the themes or domains of concepts that I was seeing. And I was trying to figure out like, where do they go and, and what has informed this in my mind? And so probably to date, I'm probably up to seven different theories that support what I consider my theory, which is a practice theory. Okay. You can have, you know, grand theories and, you know, meta theories and all these different theories, but I'm, I'm trying to take theory and bring it down to a level where a clinician can actually use the components to plan their day, to work with a patient, to design a quality improvement project. So that's where I'm bringing my theory to, down to a practice theory. So I've used the physiology of pain, uh, Catherine Kakaba, comfort theory, the theory of human caring, relationship-based care, the base of nursing by Teddy Potter, Susan Housen Daughters, theory of ways of being with patients. And I've taken components from all of those theories to sort of begin to try to frame. And so when I continue to see patients saying they weren't included in the plan of care, that became a theme. Now they said that in different ways, like nobody, no, they don't say, well, nobody's including me in the plan of care. They say, no one's listening to me. Those doctors aren't listening to me. The nurses aren't listening to me. <laughs> That's what they say. They're yeah. not being included in the plan of care. When I go in and I uh, talk to patients and they say, you know, if I don't get this, if this pain doesn't get any better, I just want to die. They've lost their well-being. So being able to take these things that I keep carrying over and over and over. And I think the, the thing that was so powerful is one day we were on a call and I had sent you, you know, like story after story after story. And then we have finally got the seven dimensions of comfort. So I was so excited about that. And then you had told me about, you know, well, this is external to the patient and this might be internal to the patient. I was like, yeah. That, and I had sent this like crazy diagram with all these squares and circles. And stuff. It was just hilarious. And somehow you made some kind of meaning out of it. And then it really started to come together of the impact that this would have on outcomes. Now, if we can put the patient in the best possible mindset where the things that they're thinking in their head and the experiences that they're having from the environment is reinforcing that you can be calm, you don't have to fight, you can relax, now you can start healing and you can trust that these people are actually going to take care of you. And you know, what was really interesting is shortly after we finished writing the first version of this theory, I had a gallbladder attack and um, I went in to the hospital. And of course they was asking me, you know, what my pain score was. And I said, 10. And before I had left the house, I had taken some Tylenol and I tried to wait 45 minutes, but it didn't work. So I went on to the ER and after they got me checked in, that 10 probably had went down to about an eight and a half or a nine. But when they asked me what my pain score was, I still said a 10. And then when they got me to the back and they 
the doctor came in and they were laughing because they were like, oh, the pain CNS is in pain. So they thought that was hysterical. And I'm in pain and I'm laughing because I'm saying you guys aren't helping me. I really am in pain. They said, we know you are, but we're just having fun at your expense. <laughs> and so the uh, I'm a terrible IV stick. And so the nurse came in and she we was praying, trying to get the IV started. And they were asking me what my pain was. And I said, was saying eight, nine, because I wanted that Toradol and I wasn't going to let it go. And then the doctor came in, they had got the IV in and they had given me the Toradol. And the doctor said, so how is your pain? I said, you know, actually, I'm not really having no pain. I haven't been really having no pain higher than a five for at least an hour and a half. But I wasn't going to let go of the eight, nine and 10 until I trusted that they believed me and that they were going to do everything to not allow me to experience that pain the way I had been experiencing it when I came in. So that stress response was controlling my subconscious. And without even thinking, I was just saying 8, 9, 10, 8, 9, 10. No matter what my pain was, I was saying 8, 9, 10. And then I thought to myself, you're acting like a patient. This is what patients <laughs> do. You're happy just, and I was like, I don't care. I'm still going to tell them 8, 9, 10. They don't know I'm not in pain. I'm still going to tell them I'm in pain until they give me that medicine. And then the doctor came in and she said, we are taking you serious. We know that there's something wrong with you. We just have to figure out what it is. Mm-hmm. And then we just, and then we laughed about it because by then my pain was probably down to a three, but I was not going to tell them that. So now imagine if those people had not made me feel comfortable. They had, and I would have just kept saying that I was eight, nine and 10, but because I started to trust them, I was a part of the plan of care. I had a sense of well-being that even though they was laughing at me because I was the pain CNS in pain, there was a sense of well-being and camaraderie that we were joined in in finding out what was wrong with me. And so that allowed me to let those numbers go because I felt totally comfortable saying, actually, right now I'm probably a two, but I still want you guys to figure out what's wrong with me because that pain might come back. Right. Now, this episode does have a second part to it, so we welcome you to visit our website and to see part two of our interview with Dr. Nichols.